Hey there, Mike Stelzner coming to you with a fascinating update you might not be familiar with. Did you know that Social Media Examiner can deliver all the marketing, training, news, and trends, insights that you need into your inbox three days a week when you sign up for our newsletter and it's completely free? Simply visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates and take your marketing to the next level. Welcome to the Web3 Business Podcast, helping you navigate the future of business. And now, here is your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Web3 Business Podcast, brought to you by Social Media Examiner. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for innovative thinkers who want to know what works in the world of Web3. Today, I'm going to be joined by Zach Pintata, and we're going to explore how to launch NFTs using innovative, brand new technology. If you're thinking about launching an NFT and you kind of are a little overwhelmed at all the technical requirements, this is going to be the show you're going to want to listen to for sure. By the way, I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. And if you're new to this podcast, be sure to follow this show on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss any of our future content. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Let's transition over to this week's interview with Zach Bentata. Helping you to simplify your Web3 journey, here is this week's expert guide. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Zach Bentata. If you don't know who Zach is, he is the co-CEO of FAIR.XYZ, a platform for creators who want to launch NFTs. His clients include some pretty big names, including Polygon and Rug Radio. Zach, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? Hey, how's it going, Mike? I'm super excited to be here. Obviously, we met in VCon last month. No, a couple months ago already, actually. And we chatted and yeah, I've been reading up so much from you guys. I'm like very, very excited to be speaking to your audience. Outstanding. Well, I'm excited to have you here today, Zach and I are going to explore launching NFT projects. Now, before we go there, I'd love to kind of hear your backstory. How'd you get into NFTs? How'd you get into Web3? Start wherever you want to start. Start wherever I want to start. Wow. Okay. I think I'll take it like from the top. So give you guys a bit of background on like myself, because I think it's important to understand who I am today. So I, I grew up in, in southern Spain, a uh, lovely little town called Malaga. A lot of people in Europe know it because it's a party town as well for tourists. But I grew up in the less party town side of the city. So I, I was born there to a very traditional Spanish family. You know, my, my dad is in textiles. My, my mother, she kind of helps with the family business. So very, very traditional upbringing from that perspective. I went to school there. And, you know, I think... Malaga is a pretty chill place. Like people just aren't too worried about like jobs in general. You know, most of my friends, and I'm almost 26 now, they're still kind of like figuring out what they want to do for a job. Like some of them are still fin finishing college. So like, you know, a very relaxed place, but definitely one with a lot of artistic influence. So a lot of big artists have come out of my city, namely Picasso. I was born actually in the same street as him, wow. funnily enough. So I was surrounded by a lot of kind of artistic backgrounds. Like my grandma's an artist, my uncle's an artist that overall have been surrounded a lot by it and I was exposed to it from a very young age. I'll just leave that to the side. But I just wanted to mention it because I do think it's important to kind of get to where I am today because 
I think, you know, overall Spanish mentality is very much kind of like you see the art, but you never own the art. And that was something that, uh, that kind of really shaped a big part of my upbringing, as well as kind of like the way in which I thought about art. So, you know, grew up in Malaga up until the age of 17. Age 17, I knew I wanted to study engineering. I got into a pretty good engineering school here in London, which is where I live today. So, you know, I packed my bags and basically left to come study in the UK. In my first eight universities, when I actually met my co-founder, Isaac, funnily enough, I'm, I'm actually called Isaac as well. And outside of Web3, everyone knows me as Isaac, but everyone kept getting me confused with him, especially when we started the company together. They'd be like, hey, I think I spoke to you last week. Uh, I'm like, no, I don't think you did. Turns out it was the other Isaac. So anyway, <laughs> my name is actually Isaac in Spanish. So I was like, you know what, Zach will just do the job and then we can move. So I moved, I moved to London. As I said, when I was 17, moved in by myself into like a student accommodation, went to university and I finished my degree in engineering. Now, during my time at university, my interest was actually way outside of crypto. So I'd been exposed to crypto super early on. I remember in 2011 in our com computing class in school, pretty much every single website was banned, right? Like all the video games that you could play online, like Facebook, if you wanted to go on Facebook and all that stuff, it was banned. And so the way in which we would get around that is that at home, we download on our thumbsticks Tor Browser. Tor Browser is what's used to access kind of like the deep web, but it also unblocks access to pretty much every website you can. So we would bring in the, the thumbstick, plug it into our computers, and we'd be able to go on Facebook and Tor Browser and all these other websites. And obviously, through Tor Browser, you're exposed to the deep web. And the deep web, you know, is full of pretty naughty kids they're like uh, uh, things that they're like a kid should not be watching for sure so you know we just realized me and my friends would be in like competing class and we'd be like finding all these creepy websites and we realized all the payments were in bitcoin so we kind of do started doing a bit of research on bitcoin and just learning a bit more about it. i was probably like what 14 at the time i had no clue what, what it really was but it was just the first time i was exposed to it the second time i got exposed to crypto was actually my second year of university there was a very famous case of a guy in my year who basically took out a student loan to pay for his university. And, you know, he paid for his year of fees, but the government also gives you almost like a stipend so that you can spend on rent and on bills and going out every single month. Let's say they give you around £10,000, which is around $15,000 at the time. So what he did was that he actually put it on Ethereum. He bought Ethereum, I'm talking in 2016, very early days. And he pretty much put his whole student loan on Ethereum, which I thought was crazy at the time. But I think he put it on leverage as well and ended up making like 10x his money, paid back like the whole student loan, for, not for that year, but for the whole course. And everyone was getting on about him. This guy's kind of like knows the future. We'd have all these meetings in which we discuss crypto and like what can we get into and so on. And I think that's how a lot of people start with crypto initially, right? Like you see a, a coin go up a lot and someone makes a lot of money and you get excited by it as well. So, so that was kind of my first, my first experience with crypto. I bought, I bought Ethereum for the first time, I think when it was trading at like $100 or, or something like that. And that was, yeah, 2016 approximately, maybe a bit later. But yeah, that was kind of my first, my first couple of experiences with crypto. So bring us up to the company. Like, how did you found Fair.xyz? So this is, this is funny. So I, you know, I was finishing university and all my friends are kind of like, oh, what do you want to do, right? And all my friends were getting into banking. That was, that was the thing. And, you know, keep in mind that I'd grown up in Malaga. Banking in Malaga is kind of like just retail banking, go to the ATM, take out cash. 
And I just couldn't comprehend why everyone was getting so excited by, you know, going to work at like a local bank branch. Turns out they referred to like investment banking. I started doing a bit of research and I actually ended up at a job in Goldman Sachs, which is where I spent the first three years of my career. But then at the same time, my best friend from university, the other Isaac that I spoke about just a second ago, he started working at Facebook as a data scientist. And I think it was in pretty early 2021, actually no, late 2020, that Instagram spun out a team to start looking into NFTs. And so my friend Isaac basically got told by the CEO of Instagram, Adam Azari, would you like to join this new team, move from Facebook to Instagram and you know, do a bit of research around you know, what we can do here? And this was way before NFTs had exploded. So that was very early days. He started getting into it. At the time, we were the, both of us, we worked on a lot of interesting problems together. We did AI research back in the day. We started a couple of ventures whilst we were at university. We did our, our postgraduate degree we did together as well. And he said, you know, this is pretty interesting. We were fascinated by the problem actually of uh, carbon, uh, carbon credits. And we thought that NFTs could be an interesting segue of carbon credits into crypto and a way of kind of making the whole process of carbon offsetting a lot more transparent, which is a big problem for the industry even today. So that was our first touch into NFTs. You know, he started working at Instagram. He said, hey, NFTs look pretty interesting. We think we can solve this carbon credits problem with NFTs. Let's stick into it. So we, we spent like one to two months just doing a bit of research there. We eventually kind of abandoned the project. And then in January 2021, everything really started popping off, right? So you had Topshot at the time, Crypto Kitties. Then eventually a few more collections came about, Art Blocks, Ford APR Club Minted, and then started going up. And, you know, we, we'd had some exposure to, to NFTs. I had a MetaMask on my computer with some ETH in it. So did he. So we thought, you know what, let's jump on the bandwagon, as I guess a lot of people did. So we started buying NFTs, selling NFTs. We're, you know, I was, I was a trader at Goldman, so I just saw it as an extension of my job. But at the same time, you know, we, we found it interesting, but we also thought that it was, it was cool to be involved in an ecosystem that was evolving very quickly, right? So it, it, felt, it felt very much like early tech days in, in the 90s. And there was all this infrastructure that was coming out and all these people that were building. And we kind of felt like, you know, we don't want to wait in the sidelines waiting for cool stuff to be built to then, you know, try to see if we can use that product. We'd rather build any product that we think could be useful for this ecosystem ourselves. So we started off pretty light. Uh, what we do is we'd go on random Discord servers of artists or projects that were trying to launch an NFT collection, and we'd kind of just help them. You know, we 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 were coders. I was actually a quant trader, so I spent most of my day coding. He was a data scientist at Instagram in the NFTs team, so he coded as well. Our third co-founder, Nathan, he was working at Facebook at the time. He also joined us in basically just helping creators launch collections. And we would do it for free. We'd literally just, you know, deploy smart contracts, uh, just ask for the cost of deploying a smart contract as payment. We'd help out with building websites. We'd do kind of even like smart contract audits for projects that were already about to la launch. In fact, and famously, one, one very big project today, I, I won't mention who, because why, why would I? But one very big project today, their smart contract was pretty bad right before they launched. And I spotted the mistake a couple hours before the launch message the team, they redeployed, and now that's the, the contract that the collection uses today, uh, which, I th which is pretty cool when you see that like millions and millions of dollars have gone through it, and it was just like a two-minute checkup online. You know, it's fascinating. I could probably guess 
because I remember all the big projects that were delayed, but I'm not going to go there. So, <laughs> so getting to the, where we are today, you guys obviously founded fair.xyz. We're going to talk a little bit more about that and about how that works in a little bit, but I love your backstory. It's a very fascinating story that I think a lot of people are going to find really intriguing. What I want to ask is for those that are thinking about launching an NFT project, and we're recording this in the summer of 2023, which is probably about the last time. I mean, like right now, nobody's thinking about launching NFTs, right? Because it's absolutely like the market is tanked, right? And I've been saying this for a long, long time, but eventually, obviously things are going to recover, right? In the future, someone will be listening to this and they might want to consider launching an NFT and maybe they're creators, maybe they're entrepreneurs, or maybe they actually own an existing business. What's your view on why businesses should consider NFTs? I think, you know, the most standard answer that people kind of get, but I do think it's extremely true, is that an NFT just provides a very new way for a creator, a brand, a business, an artist, pretty much anyone that delivers content or some degree of product to a user, it's a new way for them to engage with that user. NFTs, essentially what they revolutionized is the idea of digital property, right? So if I think of, for example, Amazon, and this is always an example I like to give because I think people kind of grasp it, uh, or at least what the advantage is, which is, if you go on Amazon today, for example, and you buy a DVD for a movie, okay, very old fashioned, but you buy a DVD and you get it delivered to your house for, you know, uh, your favorite movie, that DVD is yours, right? It's physical, it's in your house, Amazon could go under tomorrow, it's your property, it's in, you know, it's, it's in your hands, right? The difference is, if you buy, for example, a digital movie through Amazon, so you can stream it because you purchased it for $7, Technically, the movie is yours in perpetuity. But if Amazon goes under tomorrow, you have complete reliance over your digital property in Amazon being around forever, right? So what NFTs really solve this, is this idea of what we call decentralized ownership, which is being able to own an asset in a way that doesn't really rely on a counterparty, but is actually what we call self-custodial, i.e. you own it, you're responsible for it, the same way that you're responsible for your physical property. Now. From a business standpoint, you know, essentially what it does is that it, it provides a new way for customers to get really excited about the perks that you're giving them, right? So for example, you know, you've got brands like Starbucks in which what they're doing today is they're educating their users around Starbucks history, the brewing process of coffee. They're essentially giving them quests and tasks. And in exchange for that, customers receive NFTs which represent some degree of rewards or redeemables within their stores or even online. And the difference between that and just giving the user a discount code is that the NFTs aren't just the perk that they're giving you, but also the idea of owning the item that's being granted to you. So for example, one of the biggest pitches that we do a lot with uh, sports teams is fans like to celebrate when, when a team wins you know, uh, a cup, let's say, like you win a trophy or something along those lines. And they like to celebrate it alongside the club. And a lot of the times, you know, memorabilia will be produced for, 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 for winning a trophy. So, you know, you'll buy like a little, like a little statue that's a, that, that kind of celebrates it or like people, at least in soccer, it happens a lot. People buy these kind of like scarves that have kind of one team on one side, one team on the other, and it celebrates that game and people get super excited by it and they hang it on their walls forever. Now, 
if you gifted your users some form of digital artwork to celebrate that that trophy, I mean, it's definitely great, right? But ultimately, what you'd be sending them like an attachment as a JPEG or an email or like some screensaver, it's a degree of celebration and a degree of something being an asset in a digital way, but it, it's not really owned by anyone. It's, it, you know, it's, it, that is very much what people call right-click saving, right? It's just an image and it has no value. What NFTs have done for all of these assets is that they've automatically granted them value by making them property by making them something you can own. So tomorrow, when Real Madrid, my favorite uh, soccer team, wins the next Champions League, I won't just be collecting an image to celebrate it, I'll be collecting an asset. And that asset could be limited in supply, it could be limited in the time window, and if someone right clicks and saves that image, go ahead, but the property's still not yours, it's mine. And the NFT is what discriminates between one holder and one person that just kind of owns the, the artwork. Excellent, so launching NFTs. Talk to us about some of the challenges that exist today without a solution like yours, right? Some of the problems that are kind of challenges, if you will, for people that are thinking about launching NFTs. And then we'll kind of talk about how you solve some of those. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I think, you know, from our perspective, we've worked with a bunch of brands that essentially what they want to do is launch NFTs as, for example, marketing activation. So one of the examples that we were discussing the other day which I think could be a really good example of how an NFT can be used for marketing is that one of the companies that we work with, Polygon, wanted to celebrate the launching of a new of a new blockchain and essentially wanted to spread the word. And what we did was that we created an NFT that you could only mint if you retweeted a tweet from Polygon in which you celebrated the fact that they've launched a new blockchain. That had extremely well got millions of impressions. And businesses like Polygon, you know, they're crypto native, so they can pretty easily launch a collection like this and know that their audience is going to be able to engage and be able to actually, you know, uh, work with it. Why? Because these are audiences that have wallets and these are audiences that have crypto and they know how to engage. However, if you're a big brand like Pepsi, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, and you want to launch an activation through NFTs, it's pretty difficult, right? Like the first problem that you have is super complicated onboarding. So the process today, if you want to bring in a new user to buy an NFT is, and I'm not joking, it's this long. I'm sure you've gone through it at some point in your life. It's you get on Chrome, you have to find a wallet that's suitable, make sure that you're on the right blockchain, which already is already way too technical for the user. Now, assume that the user by some miracle discovers that MetaMask is the number one option. So they download MetaMask, pray to God that, you know, the NFT they're trying to buy is on the Ethereum blockchain or on Solana, for example. Fine, they get that right. So they download the MetaMask wallet. They set up the wallet in itself. That involves writing a 24-word T phrase, which people forget and people don't even understand what it is. Fine, you've created it. Now you get like this random address that you don't really understand. And you know, you see that you're going to buy this $10 NFT. So you top up $10 with your credit card onto MetaMask. Then your bank blocks your credit card because you shouldn't be buying crypto. And you do it again with another bank, it works. Then you realize that it's not just $10 for the NFT. It's $10 plus $10 in gas fees, which is, again, probably the, the second biggest problem, which is that it's very expensive to transact on the blockchain, right? So the user's already gone through this whole problem of, of onboarding, which we've done a few user tests. And like, fine, for a technical person that knows something about crypto, it probably takes, I'd say, 15 minutes from the moment that they decide they want to buy the NFT all the way to the checkout process being done, right? 
But then if you're you know, a non-Satanical user, then you pretty, you pretty much are going to give up. Fine. So you get to that point, then you discover gas fees, and you're pretty horrified, right? Like today, gas fees are what I call benign, meaning that you'd only expect to, sp to spend around $5 every time you transact with an NFT, for minting, maybe $10. But during 2021, I mean, I, I have paid north of, north of $1,000 during a very popular mint just in transaction fees for, for the Ethereum blockchain. Was that the other Was that the other deed? It was worse. I think other deed, we wasted two ETH in gas. Me and my co-founder, we bought together two ETH, which was around four grand at the time. So yeah, uh, pretty painful. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's obviously a massive, massive problem, right? You've got users that A don't know how to use your product, and then users that be, if they find out how to use their, your product, they're going to be pretty horrified when they find out about the fees they have to pay. Think about it this way, right? Imagine that every single time you've uploaded a photo to Instagram, you have to pay anywhere between 5 and and $100. And by the way, it's like completely unpredictable how much you're actually going to pay. And even, even worse, to be honest, is you're not even paying Instagram to upload that, that, that photo. You're, uploading it, you're, you're paying that feed to a network that is completely abstracted away from you. You don't understand, and it's very confusing. So I think that's the, the other issue, right? And then the third issue is probably the fact that you know, when you transact within Web3 and within NFTs, given that people have wallets, that essentially means that every transaction is pretty much anonymous, right? Like if you created a wallet tomorrow, there'd be no way for me to look at that wallet and know, okay, this belongs to you as opposed to like, you know, one of the other 7 billion people in the world. So targeting an audience is very complicated. And, and that becomes a problem because you have brands that genuinely do see NFTs uh, as a way to interact with their audience as opposed to, you know, just making money off selling, you know, memorabilia, for example. And they do want to work with this audience and they do want to target them and they do want to provide them with rewards. But then what you have is you open up a sale. And as it turns out, a lot of the people that are going to be buying your NFT are not necessarily your super engaged users or your super fans. They're going to be people that are jumping in because they think it's an opportunity to make a quick buck. That can be a bit of a problem. Awesome. Well, I can relate to all these problems, as I'm sure so many of our listeners can who have gone through this horrid process. So how do you, how does Fair.xyz make the onboarding process easier and less costly? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty much our bread and butter. You know, as I was mentioning before, you know, we were helping out a bunch of creators to launch their collections. And we realized there was a gap in the market to actually automate that process. You know, how, how do we make this seamless? Because the fourth biggest target for a business really is not just how complicated the onboarding is for their users, but also for themselves, right? You need to hire like smart contract developers, which is very technical and so on. So from our platform's perspective, we do a bunch of things, right? So the first thing that we've talked about is onboarding. We're actually going to be one of the first platforms that implement what's called ERC-4337, account abstraction. Account abstraction is essentially a way for you to get given a wallet, but without actually using a wallet. Like you're not actually engaging with the whole seed phrase process. What you're actually doing is you're logging in with an email and then on our back end, we're pretty much generating for you a, a wallet, right? And that's, that's pretty interesting because now the user doesn't have to worry about all these complexities of getting onboarded, of you know, setting up a seed phrase and so on. All they need to know is an email and a password. Let's talk about this for a second. I want to zoom in on this. ERC-4337 is some sort of a new protocol right yeah. for ethereum that eventually anyone will be able to adopt but you guys are adopting it earlier and my understanding is that the feature set of this 
allows you to do a bunch of cool things that are going to make it a lot easier for users, right? I think you can just use an email address to create your account. Is that correct? And you can also recover if it's lost. Is that correct as well? What else can you do with this ERC-4337? And then that's the first question. And the second question is, does that mean that the NFT has to support ERC-4337? Or is that just like, help us understand how all that works? I think I've got an okay understanding of 4337, but you know, some of it just goes way way over my head. But of course, you know, we've been working very deeply with Alchemy, which is actually one of the pioneers in this this new standard, and we'll be integrating from them, as well as the rest of the team and how how we find cool solutions at the back of 4337. So 4337, its pseudonym is account abstraction, right? Abstracting away from the idea of, of an account and going to something that can be more digestible for the user. What 4337 does is that it essentially creates something called a smart contract wallet, okay? So traditionally, what the user receives is pretty much a wallet address that can execute transactions on behalf of the user only if the user prompts them to do so, right? Now, what a smart contract wallet is, is essentially almost like a transaction handler on behalf of the user. So for example, let, let, let me give you like some 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 examples, right? So. I want to buy an NFT, okay? And I want to do so through OpenSea. Now, let's assume that OpenSea, they're feeling generous today and they want to subsidize the gas fee on the purchase for me, okay? The way that wallets are built today is such that that isn't really possible per se. Why? Because they can't transact on behalf of my wallet, right? Like my, my wallet is mine, only I can send transactions through it. And so OpenSea, cannot provide that gasless experience where they pay stuff for me because they're not the ones doing the purchase. With account abstraction, essentially what you're doing is you're creating a smart contract wallet, which behaves similarly to a wallet, which is what we what, what we traditionally have. But other users, for example, OpenSea, you can authorize them to carry out transactions on that smart contract wallet on your behalf. You know, that was a very long, long-winded explanation to get to the point that essentially what it's going to enable is for things like gas fee subsidies to happen. So for example, one of the things that we're gonna work on on FAIR, we were talking about the cost of transacting within within the blockchain. We rolled out Polygon yesterday, and we're gonna be using account abstraction to actually make the full experience on our platform completely gasless. We're gonna be paying gas on behalf of our users. I love this because that means a business can do and mint and, and it can be what the mint price is and they'll cover the gas fees, right? They'll get the money out of the mint itself, right? So if it's like, if you're gonna mint a thousand of a collection and you're a business and you wanna make it effortless for your consumers and it costs 0.08 Ethereum, it's actually only gonna be 0.08 Ethereum because somebody else is paying the gas fees and there could be a sponsor. You could get a sponsor, right? To help cover the gas fees. Right. That's exactly it. So from the perspective of Ethereum, we're looking into a model similar to what you're saying, which is we give the creator the option to pay the gas fee. We can find a sponsor for the gas fees. It would be too expensive for us as a company to sponsor it on Ethereum because, you know, then you'd pretty much go bankrupt within a day. But on Polygon, we're actually doing it completely gasless, covered by fare. Then that's kind of one of the things that we work on, which is, OK, we want to make onboarding seamless. OK, so we use an account abstraction to allow users to log in with an email. That's one massive problem solved. We're rolling out Polygon so that transaction fees are not $100, they are $0.01, cent, $0.02, $0.03. $0.03. So to give you an example, for example, de- deploying a smart contract for a collection on our platform for Ethereum costs around, I'd say like 
0.03 ETH, which is like just under $50. But we did the same test yesterday on Polygon when we went live. It was six cents, right? So way cheaper. So that's going to be subsidized by us. And that way we can abstract away from this idea of transaction fees for the user, which I think is going to be very important as well. And that's, again, another, another problem solved for them, right? And then the other thing that I think is interesting is we like to think of our platform. You know, we've got a big Web2 background within the company. My two co-founders were working at Meta before, Facebook and Instagram. And we try to bring a lot of the things that we think are good from Web2 into Web3. We don't think that everything within Web2 is bad at all. So we were talking about the problem of being able to target an audience. How do you curate an audience that can buy your NFTs when, when you conduct a sale? So we actually built out this product called Conditions to Buy. And what Conditions to Buy is, is essentially a product that enables you to gate who can buy your NFTs based on what we call off-chain data. So for example, I could say, okay, the only way for you to mint my NFT is if you follow me on Twitter. Right. So automatically, I'm curating who can buy it to my followers, which is already one degree of being a fan. But then perhaps I want to curate it further to my super fans. Right. And so what I would want to do is actually, you don't need to be following me on Twitter. I need to be following you on Twitter because I follow my super fans. So I know that if I am following you, you're definitely part of my most engaged audience. So that's another example. Another very cool one. This is one of my favorites. Wait, wait, hold, hold that thought for a second because there's a couple yeah. things I want to go back to. We're going to come back to this. So put a pin in that temporarily. I love what you were talking about, about the account abstraction. But I also know that credit card stuff, we should talk about that a little bit. And also the fact that you don't require anybody to understand code to be able to do this stuff, right? Talk about both of those. Yes, actually, two big things that I forgot to mention. So from a credit card perspective, I think one of the biggest issues that we were discussing is the fact that uh, when you want to buy an NFT, you need crypto in your wallet, right? And that, as I mentioned, involves you know topping up your wallet balance, which usually gets blocked by the bank and so on, which is very, very painful. So how we solved this is actually that we rolled out credit card payments, that simple. And what that means is that when you go on our platform, if you decide that you want to buy X NFT, you don't actually need to top up Ethereum for the price of the NFT in gas you actually just have a button which is pay with card and it's a single transaction which essentially reduces the you know the payment process from topping up with your credit card which is around like a seven or eight step process all the way down to a simple single click checkout in which you just input your card details click pay and you're done so the the friction from that perspective is much much lower because to give you kind of an idea right on polygon versus on Ethereum on our platform. Well, on Ethereum a year ago, you would have had to go through the whole wallet setup process, topping up, and then you go and buy, and you have to pay a very high transaction fee plus the mint price all through crypto. How it's going to work today and how it is working now is you log in with an email address, you're on Polygon, so it's pretty much gasless. And if you know they're still selling the NFT for, let's say, $5, you still don't have $5 on the wallet that we've created for you, right? So it's still a painful process from that perspective. So what we want to do to avoid the user having to go through the whole top-up process is just providing that single-click checkout that actually makes the process super easy for the user for them to be able to understand, you know, like, okay, this is my purchase done and I can move on from this. Now, are you guys purchasing crypto like via Stripe or something like that? Or are you guys custodian, holding the NFT in a custodial kind of a situation in this case and they can eventually transfer it over to their own wallet? 
How does that work exactly? Yeah, that's a great question. We actually had a very long call with our lawyers today about this because we want to make sure we do it right. So we're, we're non-custodians, right? So one of the cool things about account abstraction is we provide you with an email login, but you still own the wallet address, meaning I can't go tomorrow as a platform and transact on your behalf. So, so the credit card side of it, though, is that separate from the account abstraction or is that all interconnected? Yeah, so the credit card side is, is non-custodial as well. What, what happens is simply you pay with a credit card. We partner with CrossMint, which is a very big kind of a crypto payments platform. And essentially what they are pretty much doing under the hood is they're buying the crypto themselves, CrossMint. They're buying the NFT for you, but it never goes through CrossMint's kind of like custody, nor does it go through our own custody because the NFT is minted directly to your wallet. So actually, one of the cool things about account abstraction, partnering with Crossman and all these really cool integrations we're doing to onboard Web2 is we're actually staying pretty true to the nature of Web3. And no point is no one your custodian. And no point does anyone have access to your assets. And at no point do you have any exposure to, for example, Fair XYZ season to exist tomorrow, right? Like you still own your private key. It's just that it's now accessed through an email address, which is a lot more user-friendly than a seed phrase. So when it comes to the actual uh, using fair.xyz to launch an NFT project, can you guys kind of do soup to nuts? Like, I, I, can I bring my art to you and essentially launch the entire thing? Do I need a developer? No, that, it's all pretty much built. So you can do everything completely end to end on our platform. So I'd say, you know, we support pretty much every single type of NFT sale you want to do. So if you want to do, you know, a big drop a la Board API Club, which everyone knows, 10,000 pieces. We've got a generative art engine. If you want to do that as well, that works. But then we've also been expanding a lot into the area of editions, open editions, and one-off-one -one artwork. These do extremely well for, obviously, artists, but also for community passes, for example, right? So if a brand wants to reward their audience through a community pass, they don't necessarily want to upload 10,000 individual assets that they have to sell as different NFTs. They perhaps only want a single NFT and they just want to sell 10,000 copies of it, which is a bit of a different kind of problem to solve, they can do that through our platform as well. And I'd say the overall process is pretty optimized. If you already have your assets ready and you know what you're doing, I'd say it takes anywhere between like two and three minutes really to get a collection set up and deployed and ready to sell. You know, I guess similar to Shopify, right? Like if you know what, what to do with Shopify, you can set up a store in no time. Only that ours is a bit less complex. So actually, you know, it's not 20 minutes like Shopify store. It's like two or three minutes. That pretty much involves everything for the user. So this sets up a collection page for them. It gives them their own smart contract. We're massive advocates for the idea of, you know, owning your own smart contract and it not being owned by the company that you're deploying with. Your metadata, so pretty much all the information that, that describes the artwork in your collection is not hosted on our servers either. We call it, we, we put it on IPFS. Uh, interplanetary file system, which essentially is a form of decentralized storage where you don't have a single custodian of your of, of you know your artwork. It's it's distributed, so that's great as well. And the, pretty much the user actually gets access to the full Web3 experience, right? That you get pretty much everything that you'd get through a team of developers. But you know, the, the gap in the market we saw when we created FAIR is that teams of developers were charging anywhere between ten to a hundred thousand dollars and they would take days, if not weeks, to develop this for you. Uh, now you have platforms such as ours in which you can pretty much launch a collection in two to three minutes and it's 100% free to use for the creators, super gas optimized for the best possible experience, credit card payments enabled, email logins. These are things that, you know, increasing complexity when you hire a team of developers, like smart contract is step one, website is step two, email login is step four, credit card checkout is step five. 
you know, the first two steps maybe cost like 10 to 30 grand. When you want to do the full journey, you're talking in the tens of thousands of dollars, m- nearer 100 grand, right? Versus what, what you get with a pattern like ours, which is just free to use. And you obviously charge some sort of transaction fee onto the user, right? That's generally how you guys are monetizing, correct? Yeah, exactly. So our monetization model used to be that we charge a 6% of primary sale. So essentially, whatever money the creator made, we would take a 6% fee. But we actually found that this kind of misaligned our incentives with creators a little because, you know, if you were a creator and you did a 10,000 piece free mint that completely blew up, it would cost our servers a fortune, right, to, to kind of keep up with the volume of like millions of website hits as people try to buy the same NFT at the same time. And then we'd have these creators that would launch two piece collections that were like pretty chilled on our servers, you know, nothing, nothing to write home about. And we take, you know, a much higher fee there. In fact, we monetize zero in the scenario of the free mint. So what we decided to kind of, what we decided to do to level the playing field a little is, okay, let's not charge a percentage of transaction fees. Let's just charge a flat fee, uh, which is not paid by the creator, but actually paid by the collector at the time of purchase, which is similar to, for example, when you buy a, a concert ticket on Ticketmaster, they charge a $7 processing fee. Our processing fee is just over $1.30. So the idea is if you're a collector and you see an NFT that's minting at $100, your actual checkout value will be $100 plus $1.30. So 101.3. Love it. Okay, getting back to the marketing and targeting side of it, you mentioned some things when we were prepping for this and some of the stuff you kind of mentioned, the social media interaction requirements. My audience is going to be very intrigued, especially the people that listen to the social media marketing podcast that are also listening to this one. Walk us through a couple different scenarios. Can I say that you have to follow me on Twitter? and do some other actions in order to be able to even purchase this NFT. Uh, talk to me a little bit about some of the options on the social media interaction side of things. Our product conditions to buy, which I was mentioning to uh, mentioning before, is literally built for marketers pretty much. And this is this has been the primary use case for this product. Essentially, you know, as I was mentioning, you can you can essentially incentivize certain user behavior before they get to the mint point in your in your sale. So I think my favorite example, of course, and it was also the most successful one we did. It actually turned up as the numbered second most minted collection in history, which is uh, the activation we did with Polygon. So to kind of give a bit of context there, Polygon was launching a new blockchain called the ZKEVM, uh, ZKEVM blockchain. It's around this whole new wave of zero knowledge, which is like a new technology that's emerging and everyone's getting very excited by it. So essentially they wanted to you know, develop a new blockchain uh, that uses that technology under the hood. Now, the problem when you do something like this is that the end product is very exciting for the user. And once the user starts engaging by it w- with the blockchain, they don't necessarily need to understand the whole kind of like detail of what ZKEVM means and all this stuff. But the user likes it. But the problem that you have is that before you get to that point where the user gets the full experience of your product or your blockchain in this case, there's a big lack of awareness, right? It's technical, it's difficult to understand and so on. So we jumped on a call with the Polygon team and they, they told us, you know, okay, we, we, we're thinking of some form of marketing activation or something interesting we can do to educate the user on the fact that we're launching this new product and to gain some virality around it. So what we did was we actually launched an open edition. So basically no supply limit, but bound by time uh, rather than supply. And there was an open edition for a commemorative NFT that essentially celebrated the launch of this new blockchain. Now, I think this goes back a little to where, what I was discussing before, which is that users like to celebrate alongside brands. Like They don't like to cheer from the sidelines. I think, I mean, they do, but not as much as they like 
feeling like they're a part of that inauguration, of that commemoration, of that specific moment in time. So Polygon, when they launched this open edition to celebrate the, the, the launch of this new blockchain, just got everyone really, really excited. And everyone wanted to mint and everyone got, you know, super, super hyped about the fact that they were launching this, this NFT. And this is where conditions to buy came in, because what we did was that we added two requirements before you could actually mint the NFT. The first one was that you had to follow Polygon on Twitter. And the second one was that you had to retweet their tweets in which they were announcing the fact that this new blockchain was launched, was coming out. That essentially led to the tweet moving from being a standard announcement, you know, with a few hundred retweets kind of engagement to actually completely blowing up. The Mint got 192,000 sales. That was in five days, I think it was six days. Wow. Polygon gained, what was it, like 100 and, I think it was like 200,000 followers in literally five days, which is pretty big, you know, to, when, when you're growing your social media account. The tweet got, I mean, they had a, a, a range of tweets. And I think altogether they got somewhere between like, I want to say like seven and 10 million impressions. And that was, again, with no crazy marketing stunt, no publicity, it was just they added that condition to buy. And I think the best part is, you know, I was describing our monetization model before. Polygon paid zero for this activation because they were just launching an open edition and our platform is 100% free to use for creators. So that was, that was one of my, my favorite kind of like big marketing activations that, that we did. The second one, which is very known inside the world of Web3, is we run it on a daily basis with Rug Radio for their GM Web3 show. So actually, if you ever go on GM Web3 and you listen to the show, you'll see that they eventually link you out to Fair XYZ. Why? Because Rug Radio had a similar issue, not issue actually, they just, they just had a similar interesting problem to tackle, which is I want to reward my most loyal audience, the people that actually tune in to my show every single day, right? And if you just open up a mint, well, okay, the person minting could or could not be uh, one, of your, one of your fans, but more likely than not, there's someone that's just hoping to flip to make a quick buck. So they use conditions to buy in a very interesting way, which is that they added two conditions in order to mint an NFT that they launch on a daily basis. The first one is you need to be a holder of NFTs that they have in their ecosystem already. So first of all, you're already curating. Level one, you're someone that holds NFTs that represent my ecosystem. Great. And then level two, which is the more exciting one, is, okay, fine. We've now established that you're a fan. Now let's see if you're a super fan. Because the way to meet the second requirement is that you know a passcode that they give live during the show. So fine, you could find out about the passcode five minutes later when a friend messages, messages you about it. But by then, the super fans have already minted. They're done. They were listening to the show live. They hold your NFT. They went on the claim page. They saw that they met both requirements because you know they, they hold an NFT and they know the passcode. They minted, they moved on. And that is a very high degree of curation and targeting from that perspective because you're not just rewarding people that hold NFTs in your ecosystem, but actually people that engage in your ecosystem on a daily basis. And that, that's actually one of my favorite use cases as well for, for conditions to buy. Well, and I'm getting him on the show, Farouk. So we're going to, I'm sure, talk about this a little bit more. This, this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion, Zach. I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are like, all right, I want to check out fair.xyz, which is obviously the URL, fair.xyz. But some people might want to interact with Zach. Where do you want to send them? Is there a preferred social platform if people want to reach out to you? 
always Twitter. And for Twitter, you can follow FairXYZ, which is literally, that's our handle, FairXYZ. No dots, no apostrophes, no nothing, just that. And then my personal Twitter is a bit of a funny one. I, I very much enjoy the, the author, Nicholas Nissim Taleb. I don't know if you know him. He hates NFTs. But his handle on Twitter is NNTaleb. So I made my handle NFT Aleb. So it's the same as it. So it's spelled NFT. How do you spell the last part of it? N-F-T-A-L-E-B. Awesome. Yeah, that's that's my handle. So, you know, I always reply to messages. I, I pretty much follow most people back. So, yeah, just go ahead. Zach Pentata, co-CEO of Fair.xyz. Thank you so much for coming on the show and answering all my questions today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Hey, if you missed anything, we took all the notes for you over at socialmediaexaminer.com slash W84. And if you're new to the show, be sure to follow us. And would you let your friends know about this show? I'm at Stelzner on Instagram and at Mike underscore Stelzner on Twitter. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Web3 Business Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you next week. I hope you make the best of your day and may Web3 continue to change your world. The Web3 Business Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. The information provided in the Web3 Business Podcast is provided solely for educational purposes. Do not treat what you hear as investment, trading, or financial advice. Do your own research. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.